Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got stories about Jill Biden's visit to Provincetown, as well as the potential eviction of the popular Fox and Crow Cafe in Wellfleet. Weather Will is here, and he's got our exclusive WOMR Weekend Weather Outlook, and Ira Wood has a matter of opinion about the urine revolution. An air of excitement hovered over the west end of Provincetown last Friday afternoon as First Lady Jill Biden came to town to raise money for the Biden Victory Fund at the home of Brian Raffanelli and Mark Walsh. Her visit kicked off a busy season of political fundraising as the Outer Cape's high-dollar donors gear up for the upcoming election cycle. Raffanelli, who recently planned the wedding of the Bidens' granddaughter, and Walsh, an Obama administration alum, were the primary hosts of the event, alongside former Provincetown Banner publisher Alex Ritchie and her spouse, Marty Davis. Together, Ritchie and Raffanelli have worked to make Provincetown a lucrative destination for national political candidates. Over the past decade, a number of big names have come to the end of the peninsula to tap into a growing network of major donors. Joe Biden, when he was vice president, appeared at the Pilgrim Monument during the 2012 Obama re-election campaign. Hillary Clinton appeared twice in 2015 and 2016. And in 2019, Richie and Raffanelli hosted presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg at Raffanelli's house following an event in Provincetown Town Hall. State Senator Julian Sear attributed Provincetown's significance on the national stage to an increased LGBTQ presence in the Democratic Party. Sear said that as the Democratic Party has embraced the LGBTQ equity movement, donors have responded in kind. And Provincetown has emerged as a destination for candidates to show their bona fides on queer political issues. During her remarks on Friday, Biden rattled off a list of her husband's accomplishments, including signing the Respect for Marriage Act, supporting transgender military service members, and battling conversion therapy. But Richie said that Provincetown is far from a single-issue community. She pointed out that donors in her network are concerned about women's rights in a post-Roe world and the repressive positions of the Republican Party. Richie said she hopes access to abortion emerges as a defining issue as the election cycle progresses. In her remarks on Friday, Biden talked about the president's work on gun safety, the bipartisan infrastructure law, and the bipartisan Safer Communities Act. She ended her speech by calling on the crowd to spread her message and garner support for the president's re-election. The owner of the popular Fox and Crow Cafe in Wellfleet is facing a threat of eviction at the height of the tourist season. 
John O'Toole and Grant Hester owned the property at 70 Main Street and served owner Trudy Vermeeren with a notice to quit on July 13th. She and her lawyer, Bruce Behrens, have responded with a complaint seeking $200,000 in damages. Vermeeren is in the third month of a five-year lease she signed in April. For now, the cafe remains open. The notice to quit said the landlords were terminating the lease by July 18th. They have now filed an action in Orleans District Court pursuing the eviction. That eviction action also applies to the four rooms Vermeeren rents in the same building to house her employees. O'Toole and Hester claimed that Vermeeren had failed to pay one month's rent that was due by June 1st, as well as the second half of the payment for the employee housing that was due on May 15th. They also based the eviction on non-payment of a utility bill. Beeren said the rent was not the June rent, but was the final month's payment under the five-year lease. Beeren's argued that it was not paid because his client needed to know where to send it. Such final month's rent payments are generally placed directly in an escrow account. The second half of the employee housing payment was withheld because of the condition of the staff housing, which Beeren said was uninhabitable. He said the unpaid utilities bill had not been properly calculated, and Vermeeren paid the corrected amount directly to the utility company on July 7th. The landlord's response to these explanations was the July 13th notice to quit. Behrens filed a complaint on Vermeeren's behalf in Orleans District Court on July 20th, seeking $200,000 from O'Toole and Hester for failing to meet their contractual obligations, which has resulted, the complaint states, in loss of investment, loss of employees, and loss of business. Behrens asked the court for an injunction to prevent O'Toole and Hester from evicting the Fox and Crow and from interfering with the cafe's business. According to the complaint, there has been no hot water, and sometimes no water at all, in both the cafe and staff housing. Her employees arrived for the summer to find their rooms had broken windows, missing screens, broken locks, and exterior doors that did not latch, according to the complaint. Those types of repairs are required under Massachusetts law, governing minimum standards for housing. While landlord and tenant have had a tense relationship for a while, town officials remained unaware of problems at the property until June, when a visit from the fire chief led to a more thorough inspection that included the state fire marshal's office on July 19th. A report on the findings of that inspection should be ready in a few days. Fire Chief Richard Polly said the June visit was to inspect the new cocktail lounge in the walkout basement. Polly then inspected the rooms directly above the lounge where the employee housing was. He ordered the removal of a stove in the employee housing space. Polly told the Independent that the area was too small for any heat-producing appliance. It had previously been a bedroom. Under Massachusetts laws, landlords are required to provide a stove for tenants. Beeren's complaint says the Fox and Crow has been unable to hire replacements for the three key employees who left their jobs due to conditions in staff housing. Vermeeren moved the Fox and Crow Cafe from Commercial Street to the site of the former Duck Creek Inn in mid-2022, signing a lease with O'Toole and Hester, who had just bought the property for $3 million. A 17-year-old Dover Sherburn High School student was killed Friday night after a boat crashed into a jetty in Sisuit Harbor in East Dennis. 
Principal John Smith announced rising senior and lacrosse star Sadie Morrow's death in an email to the community, saying the school was devastated and heartbroken. In a written statement, Massachusetts State Police spokesman Dave Procopio said the victim's body was pulled from the water by a regional dive team with assistance from Dennis Fire Rescue at about 11.30 p.m. on Friday during a search off Cold Storage Beach. Procopio said Saturday morning that six people, including the girl who sustained fatal injuries, were on the boat. At least one other boat passenger, a teenage boy, was taken to Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis. On Saturday, state officials were conducting dive operations at the crash site as part of the ongoing investigation into what caused the boat to hit the jetty. A statement from the Cape and Islands District Attorney Robert J. Galibois' office said the boat crashed into the jetty alongside the channel leading to the Northside Marina in Susuit Harbor. Cape Cod National Seashore Beaches will offer free entry next Friday, August 4th. That's when the National Park Service and the Cape Cod National Seashore will celebrate the anniversary of the Great American Outdoors Act, which helps fund improved infrastructure and expanded recreation opportunities in national parks and other public lands. For folks on Cape Cod, that means the usual $25 vehicle entrance fee will not be charged at six National Seashore beaches, stretching from East Ham to Provincetown. Some beach parking lots can fill up fast, so getting an early start might make sense. This is particularly true at Nosset Light Beach in East Ham. The safest bet for finding parking is likely at the head of the Meadow Beach in Truro. The full list of beaches includes Coast Guard Beach and Nosset Light Beach in East Ham, Marconi Beach in Wellfleet, head of the Meadow in Truro, and Herring Cove and Race Point Beaches in Provincetown. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. In Wellfleet, Kathleen Bacon submitted her resignation from the Wellfleet Select Board on Wednesday, July 19th, citing irreconcilable differences with the board, lack of leadership, and undue stress in a letter she sent to the other members of the board. Bacon was elected in 2022 as a write-in candidate after Helen Miranda Wilson retired early from her fourth term on the board. Bacon had previously served on the select board from 2017 to 2020. Bacon's resignation came the morning after the board voted to reorganize and elect Barbara Carboni as chair, removing former chair Ryan Curley after a conflict on the board emerged from a June 27th executive session. The origin of that turmoil remains unclear, and the minutes of the executive session had not been released by the independence deadline this week. During the board's discussion of reorganizing itself on July 18th, Bacon nominated herself to be the chair. Carboni was elected instead. When she was nominated by board member Michael DeVasto to serve as vice chair, Bacon declined. Bacon said she would remain on the board until after a special town election scheduled for September 27th so that candidates for the remainder of her term would have enough time to campaign for the seat. Bacon's term will expire in May of 2024, 
when another three-year term will begin. The town of Wellfleet will save nearly $14 million in fees with a plan to restore Blackfish Creek to offset dredging in Wellfleet Harbor. The select board approved the plan at their meeting on July 18th. The dredging task force and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers have been negotiating for several months on the mitigation plan. The Army Corps of Engineers originally said the town either had to pay a $14.5 million fee or come up with a plan to offset the disturbances caused by the planned dredging of an area south of the town pier. The board's approval means that dredging 23.8 acres in Wellfleet Harbor, known as the South Mooring Field, could begin as soon as October. The area was last dredged in 1957, so it's considered improvement rather than maintenance. The town needs a permit because of federal regulations regarding improvement dredging. That permit requires a mitigation plan or the payment of a hefty fee. Under the plan, the town would enhance 28 acres in Blackfish Creek. The Blackfish Creek area will be restored to a successful shellfish habitat with spat, seed oysters, and quahogs. That effort promises to lead to improved water quality and increased biodiversity and shellfish populations, according to the document presented to the select board. If oyster density reaches 25 oysters per square meter, the town will receive a Certificate of Compliance from the Army Corps of Engineers. Should oyster density not reach the goal, other metrics, including improved water quality and increased biodiversity, could be used in an adaptive management plan. With the permit in place, the town can sign a contract with a dredge company before the August 23rd bid deadline. The dredging of the harbor would start around October 1st and end January 1st. The Provincetown Select Board took two votes this week that put the town on course to create up to 100 new apartments at locations on Shankpainer Road and Nelson Avenue. The first vote was to award Christine Barker and M. Tatiana Eck and their respective companies a contract to redevelop the former police station site at 26 Shankpainter Road into 40 market-rate apartments. The town asked for proposals for market-rate apartments at that site in April, and Barker and Eck filed the only response. Their proposal includes the transfer of 26 Shankpainter and the adjacent parking lot at 15 Brown Street, a potential $4 million contribution from the town, and the development of 40 apartments that would be restricted to market-rate, year-round rental occupancy. In recommending the contract, town manager Alex Morse told the select board that the town would convey the property with a deed restriction that all units must remain as year-round rentals. The three adjacent parcels on Nelson Avenue have a total area of just under one acre, and a total value of just over $2 million. Combined, the three parcels have an allowed density of 18 units, but once the town's sewer system has expanded to serve Nelson Avenue by the end of the decade, the parcel could support as many as 60 units, according to Morse. 
While the town doesn't have immediate plans for redevelopment of those parcels, Morse wrote, by purchasing the property, the town is positioning itself to have the assets needed to provide affordable community and workforce housing in the long term. The 40 apartments that Barker and Eck proposed to build would be the first deed-restricted market-rate rentals the town has commissioned without state or federal support. The town had issued a request for proposals that specifically sought developers who would not use state and federal funding in order to ensure that the units could be occupied by people who earn 80% of the area median income or more. There would be no on-site parking at the property, although there are 27 town-owned paid parking spaces across the street at the fire station. Select board members praised the presentation and then voted for it unanimously. On the day he was supposed to meet with the Provincetown Select Board to discuss dune shacks, sharks, and the town's airport lease, Cape Cod National Seashore Superintendent Brian Karlstrom canceled his appearance citing scheduling conflicts. The board had invited Karlstrom to meet in a letter dated May 22nd that included a series of complaints about the seashore's handling of several dune shacks. Karlstrom sent a response on June 15th that dismissed the select board's concerns, but said he would be willing to appear at a meeting by invitation. Karlstrom said he couldn't come to the June 26th meeting, However, he agreed to appear on July 24th. Instead, Select Board Member Leslie Sandberg said that Karlstrom has now asked to reschedule for August 28th. The eviction of the Armstrong family from their dune shack takes effect on September 2nd. With a mix of federal and municipal funds already secured, a third infant-toddler room at the Provincetown Schools is ready to open its doors. It's just missing the two new staff members required to run it. At the beginning of June, the school won Federal American Rescue Plan Act funding to open another room for its infant-toddler program, which serves children from eight weeks to three years old. With funding from the Finance Committee and additional money from the school budget, the ARPA grant brought the total capital available for expanding the program to just under half a million dollars. With that money, the school has already done the work to set up the third room, including retrofitting a classroom in the Veterans Memorial Community Center to meet infant-toddler requirements. The goal was to be up and running by August 1st, according to Tessa Bry taylor manager of the Provincetown School's Early Learning Center. The schools began trying to hire additional infant-toddler teachers even before the ARPA grant came in. They posted the two openings in May, according to Provincetown IB School's Administrative Assistant Darlene Van Alstein. The salary range for the jobs, which include benefits, is forty dollars to $45,000. The school has received zero applications for the two positions. There are currently 28 families on the waiting list for infant-toddler spots. The infant-toddler program is one of a handful of early childhood caregiving options on the Outer Cape, but the others also have waiting lists. Provincetown's program is free for children of residents and town employees. 
the program's two existing rooms are sufficient for the 21 children already enrolled, a third room would allow the program to accept at least nine more kids. Meanwhile, First Parish Brewster Unitarian Universalist parishioners are coming to the rescue of Lower Cape parents in need of late summer child care. Children ages 4 to 12 are invited to attend snow days during the weeks of August 21st and 28th. Snow stands for Summer's Not Over. Organizers said each work week's hands-on activities are designed to serve a gap when rec programs and camps are over, but school hasn't yet begun. Susan Smith said working families really struggle during these weeks. Families can choose one or two sessions August 21st to 25th or August 28th to September 1st. Both run 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. A number of local counselor-in-training students ages 13 to 15 will help Twinks Hastings, First Brewster's education director, and the Reverend Laura Gilhart coordinate daily activities. Each day will begin with a campfire circle where together the students will set the day's schedule. As of July 24th, the program was about half full, so parents are encouraged to register early. Scholarships are available to accommodate sliding scale billing, early drop-off, or late pickup. For more information, you can email twinks at firstparishbrewster.org or call 508-896-5577, extension 312. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. A piece of that extreme heat and humidity gripping much of the nation has finally made it into New England. But as I alluded to last week, this oppressive heat will be short-lived as a major pattern change allows a batch of summer polar air to move into the Northeast later this weekend. Saturday will be the transition day as a potent midsummer front approaches. It'll still be steamy with increasing chances for showers and thunderstorms late in the day and at night. The front should then cross the Outer Cape early Sunday with any leftover morning cloudiness giving way to abundant sunshine and some of the driest air in over a month. The dew point or measure of humidity in the air, which has been so high and so persistent this summer, will abruptly fall to very comfortable levels during the day Sunday. Then the cooler than average pattern will continue through much of next week, keeping any excessive heat and humidity well to our south and west. Now, in the longer term, there may be periods where that trough is not as strong, which will then allow somewhat warmer air to return. But disturbances rotating around that trough and moving across the Outer Cape will trigger periods of showers and thunderstorms. The good news here is this type of weather pattern protects us from any tropical systems. Elsewhere across the nation, the sweltering heat and humidity continues to expand. Nearly 6,000 records have been broken or even obliterated in the last few weeks, 
and this upper-level high, or heat dome, will likely continue in the long term. Meanwhile, disturbances rotating around the top of this heat will trigger severe weather this afternoon across the Midwest and Great Lakes. Then this area of strong to severe storms will move eastward to include parts of New England and the Mid-Atlantic on Saturday. In Florida, where the heat index has been over 100 degrees for nearly the last 50 days, tropical moisture moving westward is bringing more clouds, increased chances for showers and thunderstorms, and thankfully cooler air to the Sunshine State. And finally, over half the country is under some sort of heat alert or excessive heat warning this afternoon. In addition, the ocean temperature over a portion of the Florida Keys reached an unprecedented 101.1 degrees earlier this week, most likely the highest official recorded ocean temperature ever in the entire world. And while the Northeast and New England will get a break from the heat and humidity late this weekend and next week, there will be no break for a good portion of the nation under the grips of this remarkable heat dome. And a new scientific study has determined that excessive heat combined with suffocating air pollution can more than double the risk of cardiac arrest, especially for those who are already health compromised. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. This afternoon, mostly sunny, very warm and humid. Highs around 88. Tonight, partly cloudy and humid with areas of late night fog. Lows around 73. Saturday, partial sunshine during the morning, then becoming mostly cloudy with the chance of showers and thunderstorms either late in the day or in the evening. Highs around 84. Sunday, early morning clouds, then becoming partly to mostly sunny, not as warm, and much less humid. Highs around 77. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. Gentlemen, are you doing all you can to save the Earth? Of course you are. But are you ready to do a little bit more and get out of your comfort zone? Well, I have an idea. Like my house, yours probably has various receptacles. One for cans, another for paper, for bottles, for food waste, etc., etc. It's never convenient, but once we bring it to the landfill, we feel like we've done the right thing. Feel is the operative word here because once we drive away, we have no idea where the stuff goes. According to researchers at Columbia University, recycling in the United States is broken. In spite of the fact that we dutifully put items into recycling bins, much of it ends up incinerated, shipped overseas, or washed into the ocean. It's a problem that governments could potentially fix if it wasn't on a long list of everything else that's broken, like water, which is becoming scarce for billions of people as the planet heats up, like agriculture, which faces increasing pressures from climate change, soil erosion, and biodiversity loss. So, what in the world can we do? How about recycling our pee? It's called the urine revolution. 
and scientists in progressive countries all over the world are making use of our liquid excreta. That's in part because urine is rich in nutrients that, instead of polluting water bodies, could go towards fertilizing crops or feed into industrial processes. According to estimates, humans produce enough urine to replace about one quarter of current nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizers worldwide. It also contains potassium and many other micronutrients. On top of that, not flushing urine down the toilet could save vast amounts of water and reduce the strain on our aging and overloaded septic systems. There are problems yet to be solved with doing this on a mass scale, from improving the design of urine-diverting toilets to making it easier to treat urine and turn it into valuable products. Not that societies haven't been using it for years for things like tanning leather and washing clothes and producing gunpowder, even making fertility drugs. And then, of course, there's the ick factor, those ascribed attitudes people have about human waste, that it's smelly and gross, which is why I haven't mentioned any of this to my wife yet, and I'd appreciate if you wouldn't either. Not that all urine is equal. If you drink municipal water that is heavily treated with chemicals and contains pharmaceutical residues, if you take a lot of drugs, if you eat a mostly fast food diet and barely drink water, then your pee is not high quality. But the upsides are huge when you factor in the fact that urine is a nutrient powerhouse. About 95% water and 5% other stuff, mostly urea, which is the most commonly used nitrogen fertilizer on the planet. Urea is fast-acting, too, and can immediately be used by your plants. Pea is the ultimate sustainable resource. You're never about to run out of it, and it's been proven to work. Researchers have discovered that vegetables grow even better with urine and a bit of wood ash mixed in than they do with commercial fertilizers. 10 to 27% larger by mass. The recipe is easy, too. About one cup of pea to a gallon of water. But, of course, it's the delivery system that's at issue. For men, it's pretty easy, which is why I'm targeting guys. Guys will pee anywhere, all the time, off the deck, in an alley or a parking garage. Last week, I saw a guy taking a whiz against an artist's cottage in Orleans, completely oblivious to the traffic on Old Colony Way. How hard would it be to provide him with an extra water bottle? If we put collection stations outside places like TD Garden after a Bruins game, we could fertilize enough vegetables to make a real dent in food insecurity worldwide. It's a movement called pea cycling. Will you help me get the word out? Will you stand out on the rotary with me this weekend? And right there, 
next to dedicated activists holding signs saying, Save our beaches and save our sound. Ours will proudly instruct the tourists to save our urine. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Lush Life with Scott Penn here on listener-supported community radio. WOMR.